This afternoon we have come to Lord's Day 8, which deals with the Trinity. We sang from Psalm 2, dealing with the Son of God, and we just sang from Psalm 139, dealing with the Spirit of God. We should have also sang concerning the Father, and that's what Psalm 68, stanza 3 is about. I made a mistake. We sang stanza 4, but we should also sing stanza 3, and let's do that. After I have read from the Athanasian Creed, so I'll read from the Athanasian Creed, then we'll sing from Psalm 68, stanza 3, and then we will go to Lord's Day 8. The Athanasian Creed, you can find that on page 497 of your book of praise. There we find God's word summarized as follows. And this is what we confess. Whoever desires to be saved must above all things hold to the Catholic faith. Unless a man keeps it in its entirety inviolate, he will assuredly perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity without either confusing the persons or dividing the substance. For the Father's person is one, the Son's another, the Holy Spirit's another. But the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one. Their glory is equal, their majesty is co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, such is also the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreate, the Son uncreate, the Holy Spirit uncreate. The Father is infinite, the Son is infinite, the Holy Spirit infinite. The Father is eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. Yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. Just as there are not three uncreates or three infinites, but one uncreate and one infinite. In the same way, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, the Holy Spirit almighty. Yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. Thus, the Father is God, the Son God, the Holy Spirit God. And yet there are not three gods, but there is one God. Thus, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, the Holy Spirit Lord. And yet there are not three lords, but there is one Lord. Because just as we are compelled by Christian truth to acknowledge each person separately to be both God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to speak of three gods or lords. The Father is from none, not made, nor created, nor begotten. The Son is from the Father alone, not made, nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is from the Father and the Son, not made, nor created, nor begotten, nor but preceding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity there is nothing before or after, nothing greater or less. But all three persons are co-eternal with each other and co-equal. Thus in all things, as has been stated above, both trinity and unity and unity and trinity must be worshipped. 
So he who desires to be saved should thus should think thus of the Trinity. It is necessary, however, to eternal salvation that he should also believe in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the right faith is that we should believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is equally both God and man. He is God from the Father's substance, begotten before time, and he is man from his mother's substance, born in time. Perfect God, perfect man, composed of a human soul and human flesh, equal to the Father in respect of his divinity, less than the Father in respect of his humanity, who, although he is God and man, is nevertheless not two, but one Christ. He is one, however, not by transformation of his divinity into flesh, but by the taking up of his humanity into God, one certainly not by confusion of substance, but by oneness of person. For just as soul and flesh are one man, so God and man are one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended to hell, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, sat down at the Father's right hand, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead, at whose coming all men will rise again with their bodies and will render an account of their deeds. And those who have done good will go to eternal life, those who have done evil to eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. Unless a man believes it faithfully and steadfastly, he cannot be saved. Amen. Now read together what we confess in Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism, page 525. There we find God's Word summarized as follows. How are these articles divided into three parts? 
The first is about God the Father in our creation. The second about God the Son in our redemption. The third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, when the catechism students come to a Lord's Day such as this one, then they sigh a sigh of relief. You know why? Because it is so short. There's hardly anything to it. You can memorize this Lord's Day in no time flat. But is that necessarily a good thing? Why so short? There are so many aspects to this doctrine that needs explaining. For example, we state that three times one equals one. To a child, that doesn't make sense. Does it, children? You learn that three times one equals three. Not that three times one equals one. And that is what we would expect as well. The doctrine about the Trinity has also been challenged extensively, especially during the first four or five centuries after Christ. The discussions about the Trinity were very lengthy and elaborate and contentious. It caused all kinds of rifts and unrest in the early church. Several ecumenical councils had to be held in order to come to a right formulation concerning the Trinity. The Reformation also was not without controversy about the Trinity either. Calvin had to defend the orthodox position of the church concerning the Trinity against many heretics. Also today, especially Jehovah's Witnesses, still deny the doctrine concerning the triune God. Should we then not have a more elaborate treatment of this contentious doctrine in the Heidelberg Catechism? Should our children not learn to defend themselves against the attacks that there have been and continue to be against this biblical doctrine of the triune God? And so, again, why so short? Well, there's a very good reason for it. There is great wisdom in the brevity of the Heidelberg Catechism. There's also something very refreshing about it. For the doctrine about the Trinity is something we confess. And we confess it from the Bible. It's a matter of faith. And that's what I will preach to you about this afternoon. Summarize this Lord's Day as follows. We, I will preach to you about the fact that we must confess that God exists in three persons. And that that is an act of faith. To confess that God exists in three persons is an act of faith. Lord's Day 8 begins with the question, how are these articles divided? And the articles that I refer to refer to the 12 articles of faith mentioned in the previous Lord's Day. Those 12 articles, we were told in Lord's Day 7, 
give us a summary of the gospel. Do you know how those 12 statements came about? They came about as a collection of confessional statements of believers of the early church. Before someone would be allowed to publicly profess his faith, he would be asked what he believes. And that person would state that he believes that God the Father has created all things and that he is also the one who governs all things. And he would state that he believes in the Son of God, that the Son of God died for his sins, and that he is now seated at the right hand of God to intercede for him. And he would also speak about the Holy Spirit, that it is the Holy Spirit who makes you a new creature and who gives you all the benefits of Christ, such as the forgiveness of sins and life eternal. In other words, such a person would give short confessional statements as you find them in the Bible. That is how the Bible speaks about God, about what he does, and that's how he relates to his creatures. The confessor did not try to prove the existence of God. No, he merely stated what the Bible says about God. Suppose you were to prove the existence of God to an unbeliever. How would you go about it? Many attempts have been made in the past and are made in this day and age as well. Today, you have those from the creationist movement, for example, who come up with all kinds of proofs that evolution is a myth and that God created the earth. They can show scientifically that the earth existed thousands of years rather than millions upon millions of years. And they have all kinds of evidence that the propositions of the, the, propositions of the evolutionists are seriously flawed and based on all kinds of wrong assumptions. Yet the evolutionists don't buy that kind of argumentation. Why do you think that is? Well, they can come up with all kinds of counter-arguments. They are not so easily convinced. Before they can come to the truth, their hearts have to change first. Otherwise, you will never confess the truth. When people believe in something, they believe it, not so much because it makes sense, but because it fits what they want in life. And they have spent a lifetime living out of their convictions. You do not easily shake people out of their erroneous belief systems. They have invested too much of themselves in maintaining their erroneous position. If you do not want to accept something, then you will not accept it either. Intellectual arguments do not really touch you personally. They don't touch your heart. It is an intellectual exercise only. It is external. The message of the Bible is personal. It deals with your heart. It especially concerns your relationship with God. In the past, there have been some very able theologians who thought that the existence of God as such can be conclusively proved. They argued, for example, that all things must have their origin in something. A human being, for example, could not have come into the world without parents. He finds his origin in his parents. 
If it were not for the parents, then you would not come into existence. You can see that in nature around you as well. When you see a tree in a park, now you know that this tree came from another tree. And also that at one time this tree was planted in that park. Someone dug a hole and planted it there. The same thing is true of a house. A house doesn't get there by itself either. No, somebody had to build it. And so it is with everything around you. Everything has its origin in something. Now, when you reason back like that, so they say, then you have to come to the conclusion that there is also someone who was the first cause of all things. The first cause is the one who brought everything into motion, prime mover. And that prime mover is God. All things, therefore, have their origin in God. And there you have the proof of God's existence. Other ways of reasoning were also used in order to prove the existence of God. It said, for example, that everything has a certain purpose, a certain goal. And the final goal in everything is God. All things ultimately must find their purpose in him. Do you think that anyone was ever convinced to believe in God? with such argumentation. No. Facts do not convince people of the truth. Abstract truths have no impact on personal lives. And so our faith does not depend on a certain way of reasoning. And that is why the articles of our undoubted Catholic Christian faith also began with the, with the words, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We do not say, I believe that God as such exists. No, I believe in him, period. And now you start from a completely different basis. Although you may not be able to prove God's existence to an unbeliever, you know for certain that he exists, don't you? And even though you do not know everything about God and understand everything about him, his existence is obvious to you. There is no doubt in your mind. Evolutionists are dishonest. For in their hearts they know very well that they cannot prove their own position. For in order to believe in evolution, you have to accept all kinds of assumptions. That is why science has to change its theories about the origin of the world all the time. For time and again, their assumptions are proven to be wrong. And so they have to come up with a new theory again. Some of the most so-called brilliant minds among the scientists will be honest enough to say that the doctrine of evolution is wrong. There are all kinds of books that also indicate that from these men. They have observed that science is not really able to prove all that much. And some of them have become agnostics, therefore. They don't know what the truth is anymore. They wallow in the miry world of doubt. Christian is honest enough to state that there are certain things he is not able to understand. As it says in Hebrews 11, verse 1, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, 
and certain of what we do not see. We believe what God tells us in his word. And that is also to which the Heidelberg Catechism directs us. It directs us to God's word. The Catechism says that we speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because God has so revealed himself in his word. That's the proof. The Catechism is daring to have you open up God's word and to go through it from beginning to end, for then you cannot help but come to the conclusion that God is the one who has revealed himself in his world, in his word. The catechism wants to take all doubt away. The catechism makes a direct appeal to God's word, and rightly so. A few moments ago, we sang from Psalm 68, stanza 3. And there we see what the Old Testament believer confessed concerning God. We sang, He, Father to the fatherless, defend of widows in distress, is in his habitation. God, in the goodness of his grace, gives lonely ones a dwelling place. God, Father, the same. That is in accordance also with the unrhymed worship. They knew God already in the Old Testament as their father. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come as something new when he referred to his father in heaven. No, that is how God's people always have known him. We also sang from Psalm 2. <clears throat> this is known as a psalm about the coming Messiah. It speaks there about the Son of God. And especially clear from the way that this psalm is quoted in Hebrews 1 verse 5. The text leaves no doubt that those words are a direct reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God is God himself. And we sang from Psalm 139 stanza 4 concerning the Spirit of God. Where can I from the Spirit flee? No one can. That is because the Spirit is God himself. No one can escape God. You can escape all kinds of creatures and calamities and circumstances, but God you cannot escape. Why? Because he is everywhere. His spirit is everywhere, for his spirit is God. The spirit was also there when God the Father created. You can read that on the first page of the Bible already. It says in Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the water. The NIV, rightly so, capitalizes those words, spirit of God. And the Son was also there when God the Father created. For in the beginning of the Gospel of John, we read about the Word. John 1, verse 1, 2, and 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And in verse 14 of John 1, it is clear that the word is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
For it says there that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. All three persons were there at the time of creation. That is how you confess him. For that is how God clearly revealed himself in his word. We do not go to science to find out who God is. He shows us from his word who he is. And we experience his presence in our lives. He dwells in our hearts through his word and spirit. But does that then mean that all reasoning about God as he exists in three persons is to be rejected? Has God not given us the ability to reason certain things out? Certainly. We have a reasonable faith. We may do that, and we must also do that, as long as we stay within the parameters of God's word. On its own, God's word makes a lot more sense than science does. Our faith is much more reasonable than the faith, even though they don't want to call it faith, of the scientists. But nevertheless, man always wants to reason things out. And that is why the early, in the early church there were also some people who did that. The early church had to contend with those kinds of people. They had to contend with some horrible attacks on the doctrine of God. They had to deal with those who twisted the scriptures because they appealed to their own reasoning, to their own fertile minds, divorced from God. When your thinking is not driven, is not spirit-driven, then your mind is prone to the promptings of the devil. And so during the latter part of the 3rd century and the beginning of the 4th century, divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ became a serious issue. Because of the devil's promptings, the church was confronted with a serious question as to whether or not the Lord Jesus Christ is also God. Is Jesus Christ someone else than the Father and yet essentially still the same than he? How do you understand that? How are we to see the relationship between the Father and the Son? Such questions came from those who appealed first to reason, their reason. It did not come from a living faith. Such a man was Arius. He declared that the Lord Jesus Christ could not be God. For, so he said, and there is only one God. According to him, Christ was his most important creature, but he was not God himself. But the church fought back. Athanasius, the champion of the Orthodox faith, pointed out that if the Lord Jesus Christ is not God, then we would be utterly lost. For then a creature would have delivered us from our sins. And a creature cannot deliver you from your sins. It's impossible. And a creature is incapable of doing that. No, the Lord Jesus Christ had to be God himself for him to have the power to conquer Satan and death and to raise himself, as the scriptures say, from the dead. And he also showed that from the Bible. Those were very important issues to deal with. For here you are speaking about the basis of your faith. Only God can create. 
And only God can save you from your sins. And only God can sanctify you, make you a new creature. And then later there was a discussion about God in three persons. It was noted that the Bible also speaks about the Father as the Creator, the Son as the Savior, and the Holy Spirit as the Sanctifier. What does that mean? Is God not one? Can there be divisions in God? As it says in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What does that mean then, that he also reveals himself as one time as the Father, another time as the Son, and another time as the Holy Spirit? And then again, some fertile minds started reasoning. Some people who came with the solution that God reveals himself in three different modes, they said. You can compare that to a man who within his home would reveal himself and act as the father in his family. At work he would be the tailor, and at church he would be the janitor. He's the same man, but depending on the circumstance and location, he would manifest himself in a different role. He says, well, that's also, they said, that's also the way it is with God. And once again, the church had to go back to what it says in the Bible, how God reveals himself in his word. For if you were to go along with these people who appealed to their own reasoning, then that would mean that when Christ died, it was not really Christ hanging on the cross, but also the Father and the Holy Spirit were hanging on the cross. But that's not what the Bible teaches Father did not die for our sins. The Son did. And so the early church fathers had to carefully distinguish between the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. They said, therefore, in accordance with the Scriptures, that God is indeed one. He cannot be divided. And that's why you have those various constructions in the Athanasian's Creed. But he does exist in three persons. And these three persons must also be carefully distinguished from each other. So you can see that it is out of that discussion that we began to use the terminology that we use also today and as you find it in the Athanasian Creed. Now we use such terminology as God existing in three persons and such word as Trinity. And now we speak also of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being of the same substance. Oh sure, Jehovah's Witnesses and others will say that the words such as Trinity and substance and persons in reference to God are not even mentioned in the Bible. And they are right. But the triune God certainly is. And that the three persons of the Trinity are all one and the same God also is. Again, can we prove it? Yes, of course we can. We can prove it from the Bible. But again, is that how we convince others? No, you must convince your, you must confess your faith about the Almighty God. And therefore, you should speak in the same way as the Heidelberg Catechism does, which so beautifully summarizes the Word of God. It simply says what the Word of God says. And you must also depend on that as the only truth. For in what names were you baptized? In what name was Marissa baptized? In what names did she receive the wonderful promises of God? 
she was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so were you and I. And why were you and I baptized in those names? Because that is what God himself demanded. The Lord Jesus Christ gave the missionary command to his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 19. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And every time we leave this church building, as we will in a moment, we will hear the Trinitarian blessing given to us from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, in which we also had on the screen behind me as we walked into this building, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That is the blessing of the triune God. That is the blessing for us for the rest of the week as we go about our daily business. And that is not some piece of dry doctrine that we receive. That is not something you have to prove. That is something you have to confess. That is something you have to live out of. Now we receive the blessing of the eternal God who exists in three persons. Can we fully understand God? No, we won't. Not fully. At least not until we meet him face to face in the life hereafter. But in the meantime, we must confess him and believe in him in the way that he has revealed himself to us. Three persons, yet one God. Our confession about the triune God is short and simple. And so it should be. But it is very powerful. It is about our Lord God who is great and wonderful. He is our God and Father who created us. And he is our God and the Lord Jesus Christ who saved us from our sins. And he is our Holy Spirit who renews us, makes us new creatures, gives us all the benefits of Christ. He is God Almighty. Amen.